Hallelujah. Um, my calling is, is to the church. My gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. You understand that? My calling is to the church, the body of Christ. The, the church is the local expression of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the family of God that covers the whole earth of those who, who, who name him Lord. And uh, <clears throat> so this is the company we're in. And uh, when I got married in 1974, I was a new Christian and searching the word for everything I could find. And the Lord called me to love my wife as he loved his church. And at the same time, in the process of that, he called me saying, you won't be able to do that until you love my church as I love my church. And then he commissioned me that I would wash the church with water and the word, even as he says he is doing with his bride, and that this was the calling he had on my life. So I've spent my life as a man um, obsessed with teaching the word of God. All right, so this morning we're going to have fun, right? You want to have some fun? I have fun when I teach the Bible. And so you're going to get, you're going to get a couple things. You're going to get a history lesson. Uh, you're going to get scripture. And uh, you're going to get, um, hopefully, a fresh impartation for what you're about. Because I've, I've just had to get around your pastor and his family and find out that uh, you are my people. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I was like, what am I going to run into when I go up there to Dexter, New York? <laughs> and, uh, and as soon as I encountered you, I'm like, ah, I, I know these folks. We're one. Now, your pastor already made the statement. I, I, I get... I am kind of professorial, even as a preacher. Uh, usually it means I say words that people go, what was that word? And my wife will be out there going, you know, like that. There was a preacher, there was a theologian in, the, in Britain, and a theologian who got born again and became a preacher. His name was Peter Taylor Forsyth. He's hardly known by anyone, but his preaching was so... Uh, ethereal that people called it it was like fireworks in a fog <laughs> right we're trying to get it we're trying to get it and I don't know I have a little bit of that a little bit of that on me but you'll be able to get this this morning but understand I'm going to bring some secular voices in um, I'm going to well I'm going to bring at least one very prominent secular voice in because I love it when the kingdom of God is vindicated in the eyes of the world. And when somebody who does not believe looks at the church and says, Oh, you're looking at it wrong. All you hear these days is how terrible the church is. What I'm going to tell you is it's glorious. And what I'm going to tell you is that God has always used the church to bring, to bring betterness 
That's not a word, but it is this morning. <laughs> to, to his world. And, uh, it, and it's glorious. So I'm going to talk to you. Oh, I've got to get, get where I can talk to you. I'm going to talk to you about the fourth great awakening. And you're, you're, you should say, aren't there only two? And, and I'm just going to tell you now, no. Every time I hear somebody praying for the third great awakening to come, I, it, like, I, have to, I, have to get, I have to repent so that I can receive anything else they're saying. Because, sorry, because if you, if you look at the first two great awakenings and, and their impact, both spiritually and culturally, you know that the, the things that happened subsequent to that were bigger, like much bigger, like not a little bigger, much bigger. And what happens is uh, you have to stand back from history. And sometimes it takes... Um, like a couple hundred years to look back and say, oh, that's what that was. Well, when I started doing my research on revival, um, when I entered into the doctoral program with Randy Clark, I said, wait a second, look at this. And my research led me to the conclusion that we are in the fourth great awakening. Now, I... Again, I don't go around arguing this. I come and talk to 30, 40 people at a time and say, take a fresh look. You know? Um, like, the, like those things you used to stare at on the wall that were just dots, and you'd stare at it all until you go into a trance, and then you'd see a picture and you'd go, whoo! <laughs> that's, how, that's how history is sometimes. And, and I want you to see it. But first... I'm going to refresh you with a little memory that I hope you will love. If, oh, it didn't play. We're going to try this. My videos aren't going to play. Hallelujah, Jesus. What? Come up here and help me, Pastor. I'll be born again if you can get this thing to work. <laughs> it's not showing, actually, that it is a video. There it is. Your pastor walked up. He had the anointing. Wait, it's... Well, hold on, hold on. Pause it. Is that the sound thing? That's the sound. Ah. All right, so we've had to repent a couple times already. Repentance is always good for revival. Still not working, Pastor. There it is. Studying now and thinking into the open, to the fact that God actually is alive and 
That feel good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those those are my heroes. The the season I've been living in is a season in which the people that are my heroes became my friends. And then also in the last twenty years, twenty-five years, the people who are my like greatest heroes have become my fathers. And so Gail and I have the privilege of, of uh, two particular men that um, literally have changed our life and commissioned us for what we're into. The first one is a theological father. I have a, I have a spiritual theological father. I, I'm, gonna, I'm always curious if some of you might know his name. Um, he's Malcolm Smith from Brooklyn, New York, via London. Y'all know him? Anybody else in here know him? Malcolm Smith was, uh, in the 1970s, he was kind of what I would call the darling of the charismatic movement. He was, um, he was everywhere, everywhere. And he was like the first guy to figure out that you could take your teachings and package them and, uh, and, and spread what you're doing all over the world. Well, I didn't discover Malcolm until the late 90s uh, when uh, I discovered his covenant teachings. And when I did, I got my commissioning for, for what would be the rest of my life. And I had the joy of redeveloping those covenant teachings and then having Malcolm in my church um, when he was in his late 70s and having him tell me a few months later that... Uh, he spends all his time listening to my teachings, and I'm like, wait a second, how did this happen? Well, I know now because some of my spiritual sons have become people that teach me now, see? And this is, this is how this thing happens. Uh, 
it's fatherhood and sonship. And listen, we're the church, so we're not offended by patriarchal language because we know it's inclusive and always has been. And it's never meant to oppress anybody. It's meant to bless everybody. And as long as my God is my father, I'm not going to be afraid of patriarchal language. And I'm going and, and to keep sharing my father's blessing. The second one was um, Jack Taylor. And uh, do y'all know Jack Taylor? Y'all know this name? Jack Taylor became my hero in the 1970s. I was saved in 72. Well, in I think it was 1970, he had a revival in his church. He was a Baptist pastor in San Antonio, Texas, and he had a, um, a retired missionary from China, Miss Bertha Smith, came to his church. And you know, in those days, Baptists didn't allow women to be, to be preachers, and so women would come to your church and they would give talks. And Miss Bertha was covert about it. She would literally put up a flannel board in the, in the church and she would do a children's sermon with flannel board for the whole congregation to teach the whole congregation how to be filled with the Holy Spirit because in the 1920s the Holy Spirit fell on a group of Southern Baptist missionaries in a province of China and, and exploded China in growth. And then it was uh, our privilege, by the way, to, to uh, meet Miss Bertha I, I say it wasn't a privilege, she scared me to death. And <laughs> what, what I told you about with Barbara last night, Miss Bertha did that to me. She was in the room and I was like, I don't want her to see me because she'll know something about me. <laughs> and I, I don't want to be known. And Miss Bertha came to um, Jack Taylor's church and she used methodologies, listen to me, that every one of us in here would call, that's messed up. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit fell. Because, because the Spirit of God is much more looking at your heart than your methods. <laughs> he's, right? He's, he's looking for someone with a heart for Him and someone who's chasing after Him. And this is why you're qualified. You're qualified. You're absolutely qualified. And anyway, the Holy Spirit fell on the Southern Baptist Church and in six months, over 2,000 people got saved. The local strip club owner got born again and went to his strip club on a Saturday night and closed the place and put a sign on the outside door that said, the such and such club is closed forever. Meet me at Castle Hills Baptist Church. That's what we're talking about. That, and so that re, saw that revival had taken place. And, and then in uh, 1982, the year that my natural father died, I got, recon, I got connected with Jack Taylor. And then seven, oh, 2002, <laughs> 2002. you have the freedom to correct me. <laughs> the brilliant professor is off by 20 years. But it'll be worse than that before the day's over. And, and, uh, and, and we, we connected with him, and just a couple of years later, he invited us to call him dad. It was really through the invitation of my wife, who said to him, you're always talking about your spiritual sons. Do you have any daughters? And, and uh, he was a very proper man, and he was kind of embarrassed by the invitation. Was it appropriate for, you know, this older man to be friends with a beautiful woman? 
And uh, he said, well, uh, 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 I'd have to take Alan as my son. So I got grafted in. She was adopted, and he was stuck with me. But these two men, so, so in, terms of, in terms of theology, Malcolm Smith became a father to me. In terms of, of um, relational patriarchy, Jack Taylor. And it was such a fun thing to stand up in front of my church and say, you know, my heroes are my fathers. And this is what God does, because we actually are a family. We sing about my righteousness, that Jesus is my righteousness. Can I redefine righteousness for you? May I do that? Because mostly when we think of righteousness, we go straight to the guilt card. Because every one of us knows of some unrighteousness in us. And so we immediately feel the guilt and shame. And, and we go to there's none righteous, no not one, and we over plaster that over everybody's life and 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 give it a give it a prominence that it was never intended to have righteousness is not a list of moral attributes to which you conform righteousness is a relationship that conforms you to the one you're in relationship with therefore when i got married and made my covenant with this lady suddenly there became things that were no longer an option to me because I was devoted to her. Righteousness transforms us. It's a relationship. And always try to think of it that way and see if it doesn't bring things into a crystal clear uh, relationship. And this is why, this is why when... Um, this is why when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife and he'd been in prison all those years and he has an opportunity to express what had been suppressed by coercion all those years, he says, I can't do this thing to my Lord. Because he was in a relationship that had a higher call on his life. And it kept him. And that's, that's what we're after. That's what revival does. Okay. All right. So now y'all slowed me down, and I'm going to get. <laughs> I always blame everybody else, don't I, Gail? Hallelujah. Let's talk about Great Awakenings. All right. So you've never heard of the name Robert William Fogel. I'm certain of it. But notice this. He was born on July 1st. Today. When I saw that, I oh, I got to put that in my notes. Um, and and he passed June the 11th in 2013. He was an American economic historian and scientist. He was a winner of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Science, and he he published a work called The Fourth Great Awakening and the Future of Egalitarianism. Now, we think of egalitarianism as uh, the, the equalizing of men and women, but the, but the proper use of egalitarianism means the lifting up of people through, benevolent, through, through benevolence. And he argued that America's been moving cyclically toward greater equality, largely because of the influence of religion, especially evangelicalism. He's the guy that I discovered... When I was doing my research, and I was like, why, 
Why isn't he known? Well, the reason he isn't known is because the entire academy turned against him. He was an atheist. He was not a Christian. And he was just studying data. And he said the data shows, look what he says, to understand what's taking place today, we need to understand the nature of recurring political religious cycles called Great Awakenings. Each lasted about a hundred years. They consist of three phases, each lasting about a generation. Oh, this is mind-blowing. Your, your mind is getting blown, isn't it? A cycle begins with a phase of religious revival propelled by the tendency of new technological advances to outpace the human capacity to cope with ethical and practical complexities that those new technologies entail. This should encourage you because we have technologies that are exploding in our midst that our morality has not caught up with. But the role of the church, of those who are devoted to Jesus, is to bring along a moral reality that can catch up and not be overcome by those forces, but harness them to the good for the world. And this guy said, that's the role of evangelicalism. That's called revivalism. In other words, revivalism is not just the enthusiastic expression of spiritual euphoria, but it's the moral transformation and new creation of the earth. Hallelujah. The phase of religious revival is followed by one of rising political effect and reform, followed by a phase in which the new ethics and politics of the religious awakening come under increasingly challenge, and the political coalition promoted by the awakenings goes into decline. These cycles overlap. The end of one cycle coinciding with the beginning of the next. Hallelujah. And then I got looking at the spiritual data and I said, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Y'all don't have to take pictures. I'll just give this stuff to you. Yeah, I, you know, I stole it so I can give it to you. Listen, guys, I'm just a seeker. I didn't invent anything. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I'm, I'm a pauper. But I've found riches everywhere. My old professor used to say the, the gift of a pastor, never forget this, is that a congregation is saying to you, we value you, but we value what you're going to bring so we're setting you aside and we're setting you free from the cares of the world so that you can go down into the depths of the mines where we cannot go and you can gather the jewels, the precious stones, the glory and you can rise up from the depths of the darkness and come and lay these stones before us and say, look at these things I have found. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search them out. This is what we're for. This is what we're for. I can't really teach because I'm a preacher. So I'll start teaching and preaching will break out. It just happens. All right, now, the heading of this kind of overlooked because I'm getting ahead of myself. But I, but I went in just before I came here and I said, I got to give this slide. Um, because um, in my research, here's what I discovered. That the people who are used to bring revival, unfortunately, often become the source of quenching the revival they bring. 
And there's a reason which is, it's not a condemnatory reason. So the first great awakening was uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield in America. Um, by the way, it coincided with a revival in England under the Wesleys. And by the way, history seems to affirm that the Wesleyan revivals of England kept the nation of England from undergoing the revolution like the French did. Um, a horrible revolution that nearly destroyed everything. And by the way, if you wonder what's happening in American culture today, it's the third iteration of the French Revolution, baptized in modern ideologies and expressing itself in the, among the elite of our culture. Know how to pray. All right, the first great awakening was with them. And this is, was crazy because, you know, Edwards was nearsighted. And so he would, he, would, he would bend low to his manuscript and read it. And the power of God would be on the congregation. And I, I think your, your pastor's probably told you about Jonathan Edwards' wife. Have you told your congregation? Yeah, I a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first... So the first spiritual drunk of American revivalism was, was Sarah Edwards. She would be so overcome by the Spirit that they would have to carry her in and out of the meetings in, a, in chairs. And she would be in a trance-like state and they would wonder what was happening to her. And listen, this is the thing. When the power of God meets human flesh, something has to give and it ain't the power of God. And so don't be surprised. It's not unusual. It's happened throughout history. And all you have to do is read in your Bible. And if we, if we have become a prophetic people, then we should look at the prophets and not be surprised that the things that happen to the prophets when the Spirit of God comes upon them happen to some of us. And we should not be surprised when God makes a fool out of us. And... You're right there on the cusp of what I'm going to tell you because, because it's offensive. Everything about revival is offensive. Because it breaks the norms. The second great awakening, um, uh, Edwards, by the way, uh, he, he uh, hallelujah, I'm about to calm myself down because I only brought one shirt. <laughs> My wife's over there under a blanket, and I'm going to go swimming. <laughs> and, and can't get this stuff just anywhere. I'm sorry. Um, so, so Edwards, hallelujah. Do you know what was going on? There had been some tragic deaths in the community, and those tragic deaths caused the young people to go to their pastor and to ask their pastor, about what happens when you die. And Edward's sermons to young people about what happens when you die led the young people to like a spontaneous repentance. And that repentance spread out over the community. And then it spread out over the communities. And then God raised up uh, George Whitfield, who was in every way the opposite of uh, Edward's. George Whitfield has been called the first 
great American personality. That is to say, you know, how there's always somebody that captures the imagination of a generation. You know, there's always somebody that everywhere they go, whatever they say, you know, everybody listens to them. Said Edwards was the first great American person. I mean, uh, Whitfield was the first great American personality. First of all, he had a voice that he could speak to 30,000 people without amplification. Oh, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) And, And... and, and so revival exploded under him. And then the second great awakening um, under Barton Stone at Cane Ridge. And uh, um, I'm, I'm simply going to tell you that um, it actually kind of began a, around a, with a Presbyterian minister uh, named McGreedy. A Presbyterian who would, who would, who would preach and repentance came. This is really interesting because I need you to know that among evangelicals, Pentecostals did not invent revivalism. Revivalism was in the Calvinist long before it was in the Pentecostals because the Pentecostals didn't exist yet. Revival was largely the domain of Calvinist in many countries. And of course, then with, with, with uh, Wesley, um, along with Wesley was the... the uh, so-called Arminian strain of through which Pentecostalism comes. You, if you do, if you all do your spiritual DNA, that's what you'll come up with. But the Second Great Awakening was interesting because the first time that there were what was so-called um, animal expressions was actually among um, there. So what happened at Toronto had already had already happened. And I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit for you. But this is really interesting because when manifestations of the Spirit came to be upon people, uh, it first started with somebody getting so overwrought by Holy Spirit that they jumped up and started running around. And in this case, this revival camp meeting, there was a small church. It was, it was uh, smaller than this building was where it happened. But the revival meeting was at camp meetings that were surrounded around the house meeting. And it wouldn't be, surpri- it wouldn't be unusual for there to be a Methodist group, and a Presbyterian group, and a Baptist group, all in different places with different preachings going on simultaneously. And all the people interacting very, uh, very much like one family, but still maintaining their distinctiveness, even at times so that they didn't really exactly take communion together. But people would... One of the things that you were supposed to do was get yourself fit for communion. The idea was that if you had all this sin in your life, you were, couldn't come to the table. That's the way they regarded the table in those days. I think it's a mis- mistaken idea, but look how God used it. So it would bring people to be overwrought with, with, um, with their repentance, and, and there would be all these expressions. And it was interesting because they said, well, what is the biblical basis for these strange behaviors that people are having. And they couldn't find anything. And someone came up the verse, listen to this, it says, bodily exercise profits little. But godliness with contentment is a great advantage out of Timothy. And they literally started calling these expression exercises. 
And so there was the shouting exercise and the crying exercise and the running exercise and the falling exercise and the laughing exercise. They literally did this. <laughs> because, because, listen, you, you know, Christians are like, this thing's got to be in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> and, and so the, um, when, when Edwards was trying to deal with it, the, the real question that Edwards had to deal with was the justification of his own wife. And so he wrote that book about religious affections, which basically was a book that said, how do you know if these religious expressions are authentic or if they are of God? And the idea was always, you wait a long time and see how it turns out. <laughs> That's the idea. The idea is the outcome will vindicate it. I'm coming back to that theme. Or, or here's how the Bible says it. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. That's the biblical foundation on that. And so, and so here they were with these, with these things. My wife is going, you're just confusing them. It's all right. The, the third one is um, the third great awakening. It says it culminates with the beginning of Pentecostalism. So the seeds of the third great awakening were in, were in the 1850s, meaning the prelude to the Civil War, and it had kind of a manifestation with the 1858 prayer movement, but it really came to a fullness. By the way, this is when women started to find opportunities for prominence in American religious life. And then it, it came to an explosive volcano expression with uh, Azusa Street. So that in this case, this had a slow buildup, and then like a volcano. And Azusa Street changed everything. Um, first time in American religious life that in any kind of public way that, that there was black leadership in the revival as well as, as, well as white. And... You and I know about that. Let, let me just say this one thing about that. In the year 2005, I came across a Time magazine article. And it said, a hundred events that changed the world in the last hundred years. All right? And then it listed them in like what it considered kind of order of importance. The number five thing on their list was Azusa Street Revival. And I was stunned by it, so I started looking into it. What's the foundation of this? And then they did this reckoning, and they showed that, that by the numerical reckoning that they could figure, there were, there were at least in the world at that time, um, 500 million people who self-identified, and I may have the numbers right, let me get it another way, this way I know is right. They said one out of every 11 people on planet Earth described their religious experience using Pentecostal charismatic terms. In other words, they spoke of it in terms of this second experience of grace in the Holy Spirit. And they said anything that has affected one out of 11 people by self-identification on planet Earth is one of the most important things that happened, and they ranked it as number five. Blew my mind. Somewhere in my um, hoarding files, I have that magazine. But I have no idea where it is. It's, it's like a million other of my former treasures. It's in a chest somewhere. And then the fourth great awakening is the charismatic Jesus people movement. 
And listen, this thing is in three waves. This did not begin with the Jesus People Movement. It began with the Catholic Charismatic Revival in 1960s. And then 1963, it hit the Episcopal Church. And then in the mid-70s, it hit the mainline denominations caught through the Charismatic Renewal. And then it manifested in the Jesus People Movement, which uh, you saw wonderfully depicted in, in the movie Jesus Revolution. Did, did y'all see that movie? Did y'all see that movie? Oh, only a few of you. Go look at that movie. Go look at that movie. Go look at that movie. Because it has so many of the characteristics. Listen, I'm a critic of movies in a negative way, and I'm a critic of, of, of people that don't tell the truth. And I'm telling you, this thing had, look, I could find, I could say, well, that's not quite right, that's not quite right, but the story is right. And the, and, the, and, the, and the sweeps of the story is right. And mostly what that story depicted was God's use of unusual people and unusual means and God's use and God's uh, uh, outpouring of childlikeness. Let me go ahead and give you uh, the overall theme for my weekend and for today's morning. For the weekend, my overall theme is to say to you, that God's covenant expression through the Lord's table is, is, is a means by which he's going to renew his church. And I'm, I'm not the first witness on that. And the, and the second thing is that, it'll, that, that, the, that the other thing God's going to use is a childlike heart. And one of the reasons that God has, that I, that I believe God's worked in my life the way he has in the last um, five years is because I'd become so jaded by offense and jaded by things that I saw that were wrong and that I wanted to take a hammer to. And God said, well, that's not my way. I get to use the hammer, not you. And then, and, and then I've heard this witness of a childlike heart. And I'm going to depict... Uh, as we go through the morning, this childlikeness. By the way, Pastor, I have no idea. Are we having a break in the middle of the morning? Is that what we're doing? As the Holy Spirit leads, yes. This is a scary church. Because <laughs> no matter what question you ask your pastor, he says, as the Lord leads us. And, and I'm always like, wait a minute. The plan is to either tie that up 15 minutes later at 1030. Yeah. Okay, all right. I I am I need I need help being told what to do. Yes, ma'am. Um, probably I won't in this morning's thing, but I consider what I'm as I'm coming to it. I consider the Brownsville, Toronto, to be two waves of one outpouring in the same way that um, Cane Ridge and um, the New York. Finney, C.G. Finney, C.G. Finney. No one would have ever put C.G. Finney and, and Cane Ridge together, but God raised them up simultaneously in one movement, in the same way that God raised up Wesley and, and Calvin. And listen, these are very different emphasis. Wesley was an Arminian, Calvin, obviously. I mean, uh, Whitfield was a Calvinist. Um, then, you, then you come to um, the expression you're talking about. Brownsville was a salvation revival. Was very different. I did. Same spirit, different manifestation. 
Um, what happened, what happened uh, it, it, it had much to do with the anointing and calling on the, on the leaders. At, at Brownsville, their, their anointing was, was for evangelism. And man, what happened in the baptistry at Brownsville was like unlike anything you've ever seen. You baptize people and you have to fish them out of the water because they would go out in the Spirit as the Holy Spirit would come upon them. You, did you see this? Did you see any of that? The baptisms where people went out in the Holy Spirit in the baptistry, they got to drag them out because they're snockered by the Holy Ghost and you can't let them. You're supposed to be buried with Jesus by baptism into death, but you're not supposed to drown. <laughs> you're supposed to get resurrected. And, and, uh, and, and it had a, a huge emphasis on repentance and uh, repentance of sin. And at Brownsville, it was a joy revival. And it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is good because it would be easy for the two things to judge each other. But in that case, I didn't hear much of that. I didn't hear much of that. And in fact, there's an organic connection between what God poured out in Toronto and what he poured out in Brownsville because the leader of the Brownsville revival received an impartation in England that had come from Toronto and so and they were one of them happened in 94 one of them happened in 95 I think is the way it was and uh, one of them was like January 20th of 94 and the other one was Father's Day I think it was of, of 95 and am I getting it right as you know it I'm doing okay I'm going by my my memory which you've seen can lapse I'm sorry what Yeah, we won't. I'm not going to touch very much on that because, because, uh, well, I will. Maybe, maybe, maybe I will. But let's just keep pressing. Okay. Now, this is Fogel's material. Okay. This is a secular guy's material. And I'm just going to read over it fast. He said the first great awakening was characterized by the weakening of predestination doctrine and the recognition that many sinners may be predestined for salvation, and the introduction of revival meetings emphasizing spiritual rebirth and the rise of the ethic of benevolence. Okay, the, the first emphasis on being born again. Because you look through the history of the church and there's not much emphasis on being born again. But it starts actually in the first great awakening. Now, again... This, is, this writing is exactly the language of a secular historian. Second Great Awakening. The rise of the belief that anyone can achieve saving grace through inner and outer struggle with sin. The introduction of camp meetings and intensified levels of revival. The widespread adoption of the ethic of benevolence and the upsurge of millennialism. Hallelujah. I affirm that. Let there be shade. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Everybody's going to be cooler and I'm going to sweat less. Maybe. Okay. Uh, by the way, one of the features of revival movements is that almost every time there's a revival movement, there are, there's an enormous uptick, uptick of imminent eschatology, meaning the end of the world is here. And then you get all kinds of cults and sects, S-E-C-T-S, that arise and 
predict the end of the world. So the second great awakening, um, at, at the tail end of it, was uh, the, the Millerism great disappointments where they predicted the end of the earth, end of the world. And then the third great awakening is a shift from emphasis on personal to social sin. And this was the rise of the social gospel, actually. So that a- along with the, what happened in Pentecostalism, uh, you had, you had a, a, a big rise in uh, like what the Salvation Army did and their outcomes and, and the things that, that uh, became emphasis in the culture. He says the rise in belief that poverty is not a personal failure, that is the wages of sin, but of a societal failure that can be addressed by the state. There was no attempt to address poverty by the state until uh, after this period of time. And the shift from a more secular, a shift to a more secular interpretation of the Bible and creed. So there was some downsides to this. What was happening in theology was, uh, this was where there was a turn against the Bible. And out of that came the rise of the Princeton theological fundamentalism, of the fundamentals of the faith. But the way he describes this is a little different than, than the way I'd probably describe it. Um, but again, he's secular. I want you to see it. Fourth and current great awakening. Listen to what he says, a return to sensuous religion. By that he means feelings, not sensuality. Um, And and a reassertion of experiential content of the Bible, rapid growth of enthusiastic religions, including fundamentalism, Pentecostalism, Protestant, Charismatic, the born-again Catholics, and, and Mormons. Reassertion of a concept of personal sin, a stress on an ethic of individual responsibility, hard work, a, a simple life, Gail, and, and dedication to family. So that's what he says ha- happened there, all right? And then um, uh, that's where I was going to put the, the, that other slide, and, and I won't. Let me stop here. All right, are you tracking with me so far just on the, on the general sweeps? All right. The, listen, there's so many chapters that are left out. Because uh, if you get books on revivalism, you get books that thick with 0.8 uh, print, and you get them from all different sources. Again, the, the earliest revivals that I used to study were primarily uh, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, and they were and they were very Calvinistic, and and you'd be stunned at how much they abounded. And in my own personal uh, pursuit of revival history. Uh, I went to sites, locations in England where there was one day when Gail and I were visiting St. Andrews and I said, I I have to go to Dundee. And so I started trying to get a ride and people said, where do you want to go? And I, I had to go find the church of Robert Murray McShane. You know that name? Robert Murray McShane. The Memoir and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. It was in Scotland, by the way, and my wife helping me. And what happened was McShane was smitten by uh, tuberculosis. And, and so he turned his pain and his health problem into a spiritual pursuit and went to the Holy Land. This is long before people were making any trips to the Holy Land. McShane was a tremendous tremendous preacher of Christ 
And in behind him came a guy named William Burns to oversee his church. And under Burns, a revival broke out at Dundee. And uh, a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And here's how you know it was a revival. When McShane returned, the denominational leaders called him to give an account of the mess that was made in Dundee. Because especially, and this was interesting, children were being converted. And in the Calvinist world, they had associated the age of accountability with the onset of puberty. And so that the, the awakening of the conscience to concupiscence, which is an old King James word, was uh, corresponded to the rise of the awakening of the consciousness of sin. And so for children to be being converted was a scandal. And, and they had to call them in and sort that out. All right. Having said that, Matthew 11 is where we're going to go. I'm going to give a teaching on Matthew 11. Then we'll go into some more, some more revival. Matthew 11 became home base for me when I was, when I was studying uh, the way I wanted to study revival. Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their, in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What? <laughs> like, that's like one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. <laughs> and, and Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Right? That's a little bit of a slap. I, I, mean, I mean, do you get it? Now, now understand this. So, well, I'll explain it as we go. Wisdom's children have to learn the lessons of offense. Okay? Now, this is what the rest of this morning talk, as we go toward our break, is about wisdom's children. If you want to be a wise one in the kingdom of God, you have to learn the lesson of an offended mind. John was the announcer of Jesus. John finds himself in prison. In prison, John sees that his conception of the kingdom is not manifesting in Christ. He's, he's not understanding it. And then Jesus, he, he, he sends a word. Like, listen, I'm just going to be real clear that you understand what I'm talking about. John's faith faltered. And his confidence faltered. He's a human being. And it's not working out. And he's getting left out of this kingdom movement. And the man who said, he must increase and I must decrease, has decreased beyond what he expected. That's hard. And so he sends friends and says, please just go check. And Jesus gave him the signs of the kingdom. They had nothing to do with swords and knives and 
revolutionary groups and coalitions against Rome and against Herod. They had everything to do with um, the conquest of death. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is the lesson that I need this morning. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? You do understand that John was, had just become a reed shaken in the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, that wasn't John. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for you. In other words, you listen to what Jesus is doing. Jesus has, to, has, has rebuked John in a way that people around it are like, Immediately, Jesus turns to the crowd and rehabilitates the image of John. He will not have them diminish John. You'll see it in a minute. He's not going to have it. Now, John already didn't fit anybody's norms. His diet was different. His clothing was different. His life was different. He was the weird guy. He was the guy out on the edge. He was the crazy man. That God anointed with his spirit and caused people to suddenly gather to the crazy man. And now John is, is kind of off, off his balance. And Jesus says, Mm-mm. he doesn't fit the norms, but listen to what he says here. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Again, that's another statement that you go, what does that even mean? I have a proposal for you. Why is John the greatest? Well, number one, for 400 years, there was barely any prophetic voice in Israel. And suddenly the prophetic voice comes back. It didn't start with John because the prophetic voice uh, 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 came, came at the birth of Jesus in a number of manifestations and even upon Mary herself. The, the voice of prophecy was upon her. And now, and, but now a prophet, a prophet arises. John, the restoration of the Old Testament prophet. And Jesus used a verse that let them know that he was saying, Elijah has come. And so he said, well, what does this mean? Jesus says to them, among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. Here's what that means. All the prophets that came before John saw through the glass darkly. But John is the one prophet that God allowed to see face to face. So John has the greatest revelation Anyone has ever had, ever, anywhere, ever. Thus, he says he's the greatest man that's ever been born of women. But then listen to what he says. 
but he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning what? Meaning the revelation of the kingdom of heaven was of such a nature that John didn't have it. And that anyone who is a child of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God as the other gospels put it, anyone who walks in the revelation of who this Christ is and what it means for him to be Christ has a greater revelation than John. Don't ever say you wish you lived back in those days because what you have is greater than what they had. Does this make sense? Does this make sense to you? All right. Hallelujah. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Um, I know how that's preached most of the time, and I preach it a little different. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll get into that, but I have a lot of things to do. But essentially it goes like this. Um, from the time of John... The world has manifested violence against the revelation of Jesus. And those who have the revelation of Jesus rise up and are not overcome by the violence. This is not the idea that we are um, in equal opposite way manifesting violence. But, but it means that we are not overcome. But we are the ones who overcome. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Because some people still question that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wisdom's children walk by faith and not by sight. Now watch this. This is so much fun. Because Jesus does these strange things to us. And here's another strange statement of Jesus. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their, to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. Well, what's the interpretation of the, of the riddle? He gives it right here. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I love that. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. <laughs> I always used to tell people in my church, Jesus was a party animal. Every time there was a party, he would be there. You read your Bibles. He's at all the parties. He's always there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just true. I used to tell people, I want to do evangelism. Throw a party and invite pagans and I'll come. You want to win the world? Set a table before them. You want to win the world? Demonstrate hospitality. You want to win the world? Bring people to eat at your table. And you be the one to set the menu, including the language of the table. I go everywhere I go and I say, restore the common table and restore the sacred table. The common table being the table at your home where you eat face to face. Restore it with your children, with your family. And restore the sacred table, the Lord's Supper. So that Christ has a central place in our worship. For John came neither eating nor drinking. They said, he's demonized. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friends of tax gatherers and sinners. 
Now listen, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. Meaning that in the end, both John and Jesus would be justified by the outcomes. And again, it's, it's riddling conversation. So that we, Jesus talks and we go, what? But he, he actually applied it pretty clearly. John neither ate or drank, and Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And both of them, here, here's, what, here's what this means is. The world is always looking for a reason to say, I don't have to listen to you. And the religious world as well. Wisdom's children bring controversy and conflict. All right. Let me, let me just check myself, see how far I want to go. Yeah, revival and controversy. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the controversy. Revival will bring controversy by the man because the leaders of revival are complex and flawed. I'm not suggesting that was an interpretation of John and Jesus. They were complex, but I'm not suggesting flawed. But I, have, I know enough about the people that God uses that, that they are flawed. John was clearly flawed, John, John the Baptist, or else Jesus wouldn't have had to have rebuked him. But understand this. This is a lesson for all of us. When you find a flaw in, in leaders, because you're going to find the flaw, if you, if you nullify what they brought, you limit your ability to receive. Be as generous as Jesus, and once you've found the flaw, rehabilitate their image. The Lord's rebuking me on this because I've been so mad at a bunch of people. Hallelujah. I don't have any trouble forgiving the devil, devil's folks, but Jesus' people, they get me a little bit upset <laughs> as I get them upset. The message, the teach, there are teachings that push the limits. I know everywhere I go that I'm in danger of pushing the limits. One of the things I try to do is take the measure of the house because this is your house. This is not my house. And, and your gatekeepers have opened the door and invited me in. So I, I consider it a special treasure. So let me just say to you, if I make a mess during this week, go to your pastor and have him sort it out. I'm, I'm, it'll be too late to fix me. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. But, but everything that I say is, is not the creed of your house. I'm, I'm here to edify you, but I'm not inerrant. the mess that is to say in revival you got to catch them and then you got to clean them in the jesus people revival remember chuck smith he said the most and he actually said this i just want them to take a bath he was so offended at everything about them they were dirty and smelly and and they they made a mess everywhere they went and, and he had to get to the place where he could overcome his offendedness at them so that he could reach them. This is what's going to have to happen with the alphabet soup crowd for the American church to be able to do anything of any good to, to bring them to Christ. We're going to have people with mangled bodies who know Jesus because the gospel is greater 
than the mess they've made. And we're going to have to learn to, to not be afraid of the mess. I'm sorry, it's the truth. There was a statement that came, two statements that came out of the last iteration of revival. The first one was, don't trim the bush until you know what you've got. Which is to say, a bush is not like a beautiful tree. It grows up and it's a mess. And the idea is, wait till you see what comes on the bush. The flowers, the fruit. Wait till you see what you've got before you trim it. And then the second one is that God often offends the mind to reveal the heart. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring that, this to a, 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 a pause in just a minute. I'm going to pause it with a, a, a final exhortation. There is a, there's a concept that, that I've, I've come to realize in the last few years of order and chaos. In fact, the creation story is the story of order, of, of chaos and order. In fact, it may be that chaos usually precedes order. Well, what happened, what's happened in American Christianity, or really world Christianity, but I'll, I'll stick to us, uh, and, and is, is, that, is that we, to, we come to order, we, we come to treasure order. We like order. Our favorite verse is, let everything be done decently and in order. And, and yet, if you, here's what happens. If you actually read that, then the stuff that he says to do, we don't even do that. Like, let two or three prophesy, let somebody speak in tongues, let somebody interpret. He actually says do those things, and what we do is we say, things have to be done in order, so we don't let prophecy or tongues happen. Because we're afraid that somebody's going to make a mess. And we're afraid that somebody's going to get up and walk out of church. I used to tell people, I don't want my church to be seeker-friendly. I want it to be seeker-terrifying. <laughs> like, I used to say, I want my church to be like a horror movie. Those, you know, you're in a horror movie and you're like, <sighs> and you're holding on to your seat and you want to jump up and run, but you can't because you've got to see what's going to happen. So I used to tell people, I used to tell people, when you come to this church, at least, at least come for a few weeks because we are an acquired taste. <laughs> you know, I didn't like coffee when I first started drinking it. I didn't like it at all. I, there's other things I didn't like at first, and I'm not going to mention them because you won't like me. <laughs> and, and, and so I used to say, I'm an acquired taste. And this is revival. And what would happen in our church was people would come, and, and all the time when they would give their testimonies, they would say, man, I didn't know about this place when I first came here. But Jesus. Right? Now, chaos is necessary for order to proceed fruitfully. Chaos is the flood. Order is the floodplain where the fruitfulness comes. And, and we love chaos. And by the way, our children's children's generation is obsessed with chaos because chaos is extreme sports. Chaos is when you're sitting there and you're watching the, the, and they're saying, he's going to go for the, he's going to go for the, quadruple whatever hoopajucha <laughs> you know he's gonna do this thing that nobody's ever done before and we're always like Ugh. 
Like evil Knievel is an everyday event in extreme sports. Because we know, man, they're like out there and their life is at stake. It's, ex, it's extreme and it's terrifying. And then all of a sudden they go, whoa, he did something that's never been done before. And within three months, everybody's doing it. Because somebody went out and grabbed the chaos and brought it into order. Somebody went out there where nobody's ever gone before and said, we're going to possess the land. This is in the heart of man put there by God. And, and, and we exist in order. And so revival is the place where chaos and order meet. And this is, and this is why I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if... If, you, if your church gets to where nobody ever walks out because of the chaos or because of, of something being offending the mind, then I'm telling you, you're on your way. You're on your way to a dead church. This is why I would bring guests in. I would bring somebody in to cause something to happen that I couldn't cause. Because I wanted my church to be drawn to the Upward call of God in Christ. Always longing for something more. So let me say it again. So literally, like, like I used to start saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. And I remember the old leader in my denominational church, he said, more? I got everything I needed when I got saved. And I would say, is that where you got that attitude? Because I don't think it was. I don't think it was. So you, you, you get this, right? Hallelujah, let's take a break.